This program is brought to you by Stanford University. Good evening, and welcome to the Roger W. Hines Lecture for the 2008-2009 academic year. Can you hear me out there in the audience? This is, this is working, good. I am here on behalf of the Office for Religious Life at Stanford, the Haas Center for Public Service, and the ASSU Speakers Bureau. My name is Scotty McLennan, I'm Dean for Religious Life. In the mid-1990s, the James Irvine Foundation established the Heinz Lectures in Religion and Society. And this series is intended to bring to the Stanford campus leading thinkers who examine the interaction of systems of belief and practice with human groups and societies. Recent Heinz lectures have included the Dalai Lama, Karen Armstrong, Bart Ehrman, and Amy Jill Levine. There's much to honor in Roger Heinz and his legacy. A professor of psychology, then dean, then vice president at the University of Michigan. He came to the University of California at Berkeley, where he served as chancellor from 1965 to 1971. Heinz led the American Council on Education and then the Hewlett Foundation until his retirement in 1992. For many years, he lent his energy and wisdom to Stanford, having become a regular participant at its memorial church and a consultant to university leaders. We're delighted to honor him again this year with tonight's lecture, and I'm grateful to Religious Studies Professor Robert Gregg, formerly the Dean for Religious Life, who worked with the Irvine Foundation to establish this lecture series. I'm also indebted to the Haas Center and the ASSU for their co-sponsorship, and I want to recognize the help that was provided by the Rathbun Fund for exploring what, which, what leads to a meaningful life, and its program manager, Nasun Cho, who's been the central organizer of tonight's event. And I now turn the program over to ASSU, ASSU President Johnny Dorsey, who will introduce this year's Roger W. Hines Lecturer. Hi. I'm going to start by reading over uh, Dr. Patel's bio, and then I'm going to focus a little more on why I'm personally so excited that he's here tonight. So on to the bio. Ibu Patel is the founder and executive director of the Interfaith Youth Corps, a Chicago-based international nonprofit working to build mutual respect and pluralism among religiously diverse young people by empowering them to work together to serve others. He is the author of Acts of Faith, the story of an American Muslim, the struggle for the soul of a generation. Ibu holds a doctorate in the sociology of religion from Oxford University, where he was a Rhodes Scholar. He writes The Faith Divide, a featured blog on religion for the Washington Post, and he's also written for the Harvard Divinity School Bulletin, the Chicago Tribune, the Clinton Journal, the Review of Faith and International Affairs, the Journal of College and Character, and the N NPR. Ibu serves on the Religious Advisory Committee of the Council on Foreign Relations, the National Committee of the Aga Khan Foundation USA, the Advisory Board of Duke University's Islamic Studies Center, 
and the national board of the YMCA. He's spoken at the TED conference, the Clinton Global Initiative, the Nobel Peace Prize Forum, and at universities around the world. Ibu is an Ashoka Fellow, which means he's part of a select group of social entrepreneurs whose ideas are changing the world. He was named by Islamica magazine as one of 10 young Muslim visionaries shaping Islam in America. And he was chosen by Harvard's Kennedy School Review as one of five future policy leaders to watch. And he was also recently given an honorary doctorate from Washington and Jefferson College. That's a pretty impressive list. We were joking that we would read it all because he looks about 25. And we want you to know that he's done just amazing things in this field. Um, but now I want to talk about why I uh, am so excited that he's here tonight. Um, I got to see uh, Ibu give a speech about two years ago at a conference. It was a long conference, and I was really tired. And I thought before going in, I'm not that into religion. I'm not sure, um, I'm not sure how this applies to me. Um, and as soon as he started talking about kind of his vision of America uh, and the world and the importance of religion and how youth, uh, we are the people who have to help build pluralism in the globe, I, I was just blown away. Um, and so I saw him in September at this conference and I pretty awkwardly stalked him for a while and then pounced on him and said, um, truthfully, Ibu, you, know, you made me cry at that speech two years ago. You've got to come talk to our campus. Um, about the work you're doing. And so I'm extremely excited that he's here today to share with us. First, I'm going to play a movie, and then he's going to come up. But before that, I want to share two quick things. There are some workshops that are being led by leaders from the Interfaith Youth Corps. And one of them is tomorrow from noon to 1.30. It's Religious Pluralism 101. And the other one is, what's your story? Storytelling is a tool of interfaith dialogue. That one is at 3.15 to 5.15. There are flyers for both of these outside, and you can sign up at the end of this lecture. So I promise you'll be inspired when we finish here. Sign up for these, because it's a big deal that his team flew out to California to, to work with us. So thank you guys again for coming, and I hope you enjoy the talk. have you not pray than to pray in a place that's a temple. I didn't know you could be black and Muslim. I don't know why I didn't know that. And I didn't know you could be Arab and Christian. I don't know why I didn't know that. These are just things I didn't know. When they said, okay, I'm going to say, 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 what I'm doing right now is this Islamic, is this what a Muslim should do?
don't know. The first thing back then when I, when I thought a Muslim was Osama bin Laden. But then it was like, you know, there got to be something more to that, so I had to dig deeper. You know, he would give me a lot of one-word answers when I first met him. And, you know, we just warmed up and we just started talking because, you know, I can identify with a lot of things that he's been through, what he's going through. I'm really tired of your, your antics. Sorry, sorry. Stop. American. <laughs> you deny, do you deny that you are too much? But they're just pressing <laughs> the guys on our trip, if I did not wear hijab, I'm sure they would mess around, they would say dumb jokes, and they wouldn't be as respectful of me. People take you more seriously. Okay. Atva and Matt in my home. Do you like it, guys? It's delicious. Delicious? Yeah! <laughs> I was amazed that Rafat and I were able to have such a close conversation on our first night as roommates. But the interaction would prove to be the rule of the trip rather than the exception. Uh, I participate in the first peace camp. First peace camp between Jordan and Israel. Wow. <laughs> that's, that? that's Shirley. Shirley? Shirley is like uh, Israeli girl. Actually, uh, I got my first kiss from Shirley. Oh! <laughs> yeah, my first I assumed the Jordanians did not like Israelis and did not like Jews. I've told you the story of my family friend who, who really who tried this business enterprise and really tried to make some connections between Israelis and Jordanians and it ended very badly for her and her partner who's very, very, very close to her um, was shot in broad daylight and it wasn't random. When I started to deal with other cultures and other religions and other people, I needed someone to tell me how to deal with them, how to keep my own faith and not to question my own faith when someone comes up to me and says, you're wrong. I need answers, I need to know why, I need to know how. So, um, if you travel in certain circles in Chicago, and I imagine the rest of the country, about the only question you were asked between early November and mid-January was, are you going to the inauguration? And my standard answer for three and a half months was, why would I pay $1,000 to sleep on somebody's floor and freeze outside with two million of my fellow citizens? And then about a week before the inauguration, 
I decided, well, maybe I'll go, which meant that I had the privilege of paying $3,000 to sleep on somebody's floor and freeze outside with two million of my fellow citizens, to watch something on a jumbotron outside, which I could have watched in my living room inside. And I wouldn't have given it up for the world. Because there's something about watching President Obama talk about America's patchwork heritage, as he said, Christian and Muslim, Jew and Hindu and non-believer as a strength because we are a country that has experienced the bitter swill of civil war and come out more united. And to be surrounded by that patchwork heritage and to watch two million of that patchwork heritage try to make their way out of the National Mall after that inaugural address. And to think about them as individuals, and I had a lot of time caught in that crowd trying to exit to look at several of those individuals and to think, I wonder what your identity journey is. I wonder what your American story is. And to connect that moment to the time when Barack Obama first exploded on our screen four and a half years ago at the Democratic National Convention, when he began that talk with the story of his grandfather in Kenya, a domestic cook to the British, who believed in education, believed in a dream, and sent his son to America all the way to Hawaii, where that Kenyan met a Kansan and had a son who would be the future president of the United States. As Barack told that story at the DNC, I kept on seeing flashes of his first book, Dreams from My Father, where he basically struggles with his multiple selves. You know, Kansan and Kenyan, community organizer and corporate lawyer, white and black, East Coast and West Coast, and comes to the end of that to understand those different identities, not as mutually exclusive, but as mutually enriching. And a huge subtext of that book is this isn't just the journey of Barack Hussein Obama. This is the story of a nation. The story of a country that was begun within remarkable diversity and that was not based on an ethnicity, not based on a religion, but based on an idea. And a part of that idea is that people from the four corners of the earth can come and build a nation together. There's a line in the work of the political philosopher Michael Walzer. The challenge of America is to embrace its differences and maintain a common life. And interestingly, we see that resolved in our president. We see that in microcosm. You know, there's a great line in the work of William Blake, you see a world in a grain of sand and a heaven and a heaven and a wildflower, to hold eternity in the palm of your hand and infinity in an hour. We watch America and Barack Obama, you know, the kind of resolution of that Whitman-esque idea that do I contradict myself? Very well then, I contradict myself. I am large. I contain multitudes. And the next day, I had the privilege of being at the National Cathedral and watching a dimension of America's multitudes pray in the presence of the first black president of the United States of America. And so there was Ingrid Mattson, the first convert, the first female to head the Islamic Society of North America, standing next to the rabbi David Saperstein, standing next to the Reverend Otis Moss Jr., 
standing next to the Reverend Jim Wallace, standing next to the Archbishop of Washington, D.C., all praying for the nation. I thought to myself, this is what America needs to be about in the 21st century. And not just for ourselves. And Obama makes this so beautifully explicit in that inaugural address, where he says not only is America's patchwork heritage a strength, and frankly, we're used to hearing that, something that we read about in grade school, but it is that very patchwork heritage that is a force for peace in the world. I thought, you know, what if the hundreds of millions of people who stopped in their tracks, whether it was three in the morning or noon, to watch that man give his inaugural address, could tune in to what was happening at the National Cathedral 18 hours later, and could see these Jews and these Muslims and these Hindus praying for the nation together. Because I think a lot of those people believe that Jews and Muslims can't actually stand on the same stage together that Hindus and Buddhists can't actually live together, that the clash of civilizations has acquired the force of inevitability. I think part of what Barack Obama is saying is that America has given and must give the lie to that dangerous idea. To quote Walzer again, and I think that he gets this exactly right in his works of political philosophies. He says that, you know, in the beginnings of the tradition of political philosophy, there was this notion that democracy was possible only under the condition of homogeneity. That you had to have a polity which was entirely Christian or entirely of one ethnic stock in order for people to feel invested in voting for a leader that they all bought into, whether or not they actually cast their vote for that individual. Walzer writes about this for a little bit in his book, What It Means to Be an American. Then he takes a break, and in the next section, he says, until America. It was only the creation of this nation state, which had at its beginnings Catholics and Jews and Quakers and Puritans and a couple of heretical non-believers as Roger Williams and others came to be thought of and making a country work, building a nation on the idea that religious freedom and religious diversity are connected. That's originally from Voltaire, this notion that if you have one religion, it does what one religion always does. It dominates everyone else. If you have two religions, do what two religions often do. They kill each other. But if you have 30 religions, somehow they have to make it work. James Madison picks up on that idea and says, the reason we need religious freedom in America is precisely because of the presence of religious diversity. The Puritans want religious freedom because they want to make sure that they're not ruled by the Quakers. We need to make sure we have to understand that the freedom of our community defends, depends on the principle of freedom ruling the whole. That's how you make a diverse country work. That's what I saw on stage at the National Cathedral. But I think it's important to point out that as much as America has a remarkable history in bringing different communities together to build a nation, it is not 
an inevitable history, and it's of course not an unblemished history. And I want to tell you a story that occurred just a couple of years ago to point out just how fragile this notion of different communities coming to build a nation together is. I read this in the New York Times a couple years ago. It's about Jersey City. Jersey City happens to have one of the largest population of Egyptians in America, largest proportionally to its size. And of these 50,000 or so Egyptian Americans, they're about half Christian and half Muslim. And the New York Times article starts out by saying that these communities, although there are frictions back in Egypt for a variety of reasons, manage to get along pretty well in Jersey City. They go to high school together and play football. They go into business together. They go to dinner together. They share shisha pipes and coffee shops. They do pretty well. Then something happened. There's a heinous murder of an Egyptian Christian family. And this causes profound repercussions between these communities. A deep sense of tension sets in. One limousine driver says there is no trust anymore between Egyptian Muslims and Christians in Jersey City. There are fights in high schools. There are yelling matches in neighborhood grocery stores. There's a sense of your kids can't play with my kids anymore, fracturing along the lines of religion. And there's this kind of subtext to this New York Times piece that this is inevitable. Just like Christians and Muslims in Egypt have for many generations and centuries had tension, so will that ultimately sow itself in America. Now think about this for a second. Think about the implications of that. America is the most religiously diverse country in human history. Nowhere else have so many people from so many different religious backgrounds gathered in a single polity. We're also the most religiously devout nation in the West. What that means is that religion matters in a deep way to a lot of people in this country. And we live at a time of religious conflict. So if it is in fact the case that the tension between Christians and Muslims in Egypt, Sunnis and Shias in Baghdad, Catholics and Protestants in Belfast, Hindus and Muslims in Bombay, will somehow travel, they would travel here. Because diaspora groups of each of those communities live here. Is it possible that Belfast, Bombay, Baghdad somehow manifest themselves in Boston? Does one not think that the Sunnis and Shias in Boston pay close attention to what's happening in Baghdad and feel the repercussions of the tension between those communities? What Obama is suggesting is a different model. And that's a model of perhaps how we build Boston, perhaps how we engage the religious diversity in America, perhaps how we understand the American story and the notion of Christians and Muslims and Jews and non-believers and Hindus building a nation together. Perhaps that patchwork heritage is not just a domestic strength, but an international force for good. So I took a different set of eyes to that Jersey City story. And I saw something in there that the tone of the story didn't betray. And that is this, that after that heinous murder occurred of the Egyptian Christian family, somebody called a press conference, a man named Dr. Hamoud. And what he said was, this looks like something that Muslims would do. He was part of 
a right-wing Christian group in Jersey City that had for a long time tried to sow tension between the Christian and the Muslim community. He saw this as his opportunity to cement that tension. The clash of civilizations wasn't inevitable in Jersey City. Christians and Muslims weren't fated to be in tension with one another. Somebody came to the foreground and sowed that tension. Somebody framed reality in a way that made it look like Muslims were the perpetrators, although nobody had solved the murder at that time. Somebody called a press conference and said, we are opposed to you, and the us and the them is defined along religious lines. And so it occurred to me, what if a different person had come to the fore? What if somebody called a press conference and said, we in Jersey City, Christian and Muslim, Hindu and Baha'i, Buddhist and secularist, are opposed to whoever did this heinous murder. We believe in a Jersey City that is connected to each other, that is built by different communities, and we are opposed to whoever would violate that sense of our city. The us and the them becomes not Christians versus Muslims, it becomes Jersey City versus murderers. I started to think at that point, what does it look like to have a generation of people understand that that's a part of the American story in the 21st century? That's a part of what we need to be proactive and deliberate about. Just as we have a generation of people who unfortunately think it's their business to sow religious tension, to create the clash of civilizations, to give it the sheen of inevitability, what does it look like to have a generation of people who call themselves interfaith leaders, who have the foresight when they read that newspaper article to call a press conference, who have the skill set and the network to gather a group of community and religious leaders in Jersey City and say, we need to make sure that we define the us and the them correctly. What if we understood the 21st century in America as a century of rising interfaith leaders giving reality to the dream of American pluralism? I think that's one of the big promises of the Obama era. And once you start thinking about what does it look like to aspire to be an interfaith leader, the same way that people aspire to be an environmentalist, the same way people aspire to be a human rights activist, you start asking the question, what does an interfaith leader do? What can you accomplish if you're an interfaith leader? I had the privilege of having dinner with about a dozen students at Stanford University who are part of something called the Fellowship for Religious Encounter. And part of what they described to me was how profound it was to gather with students of different faith backgrounds and perspectives and have deep conversations about spiritual journeys and religious identities. So I have a question for them and a question for the rest of you in this room. What if you were in Jersey City the morning that that newspaper article came out in the paper? What if the mayor called you and said, look, I'm afraid of centuries-old tension in Egypt manifesting themselves in America because of what some extremists might do here. What advice would you give the mayor? 
what would you do? Would you have the ability to build religious pluralism in Jersey City knowing that it's not neutral territory? Knowing that there are other people calling their press conferences? There are religious leaders lining up in an us and them fashion, Muslim versus Christian? Are the interfaith leaders who are emerging in our generation, do they have the ability to go up against the extremist leaders? I think about an interfaith leader as somebody who can do three things, has three basic qualities. The first one is vision, the second one is knowledge base, and the third one is skill set. I want to go through each of these in, uh, in, in a short while. I want to begin with vision. <clears throat> Ronnie Heifetz at the Harvard Center for Public Leadership says, very simply, the first thing a leader does is define reality. Right? What Dr. Hamoud did in Jersey City is define reality as Christian versus Muslim. What an interfaith leader would do in that situation is define reality as pluralist versus extremist. Who has the ability to define reality? Who has the ability to say, this is what's going on here? Uh, Sun Tzu, uh, the great Chinese philosopher, has uh, this line. If you don't know who you are, and you don't know who the enemy is, you will lose every battle. I think that this is part of the problem in the American quote-unquote war on terror that there is a subtext which President Obama lifted today with a simple interview on Arab television, a subtext question to every Muslim on the planet, which is, do you know any terrorists? Are you part of the them? Are we in a war against 1.2 billion people? What Obama did today is simply say, America is not your enemy, and we don't consider the Muslim world our enemy. We consider extremists our enemy. We draw the faith line not between Muslims and Christians, but between pluralists and extremists. Drawing that faith line correctly is going to be central to peace, security, and stability in the 21st century. Think about an analogy in the color line. A hundred years ago, Martin Luther King Jr. famously said, uh, W.E.B. Du Bois, the great African-American scholar, famously said that the problem of the 20th century would be the problem of the color line. For a long time, people understood the color line very simply as separating black and white. Half century later, Martin Luther King Jr. came along and flipped the script and said, the color line doesn't separate black and white. It separates people who would perish together as fools from people who would live together as brothers. A new definition of reality, a new definition of us and them. What does it look like to articulate the faith line in a similar way. To get rid of the dangerous paradigm of the clash of civilizations and to replace it with the paradigm of how people from different religious communities are living together and what we at the Interfaith Youth Corps call pluralism. Pluralism for us has both a poetic definition and what we think of as a fuller national security definition. The poetic definition is simple. Pluralism is building a society where people from different backgrounds live in equal dignity and mutual loyalty. It is opposed to extremism or totalitarianism, which is an equally, equally simple definition. Totalitarianism is a group of people who want 
only their group to dominate and everyone else to suffocate. What does it mean to build pluralism? What does it mean to define the us as people who believe in that dream? Pluralism, we think, is about three things. Number one, respect for people's identities. We put particular salience on people's religious identities. Number two, positive relationships between different communities. And number three, a commitment to the common good. Those are the three things at the heart of pluralism. Pluralism is much thicker than diversity. Diversity is simply the presence of people from different backgrounds together. Pluralism is making sure that their identities are respected, that their relationships are strong, and their commitment to the common good is robust. And the first thing an interfaith leader does is have that paradigm, have that vision, walk through the world with those eyes. And if you do that, it changes everything. It changes the way you read the New York Times. Because when you hear in the New York Times that Christians and Hindus are fighting, the, fighting each other in Orissa, you think to yourself, it can't be every Christian in Orissa and every Hindu in Orissa at each other's throats. Right? That's not the us and the them. There are pluralists in Orissa who want to build in Orissa where people from different backgrounds live in equal dignity and mutual loyalty. And there are extremists in Orissa who want only their group to dominate and everyone else to suffocate. And there are Hindu pluralists, and there are Christian pluralists, and there are Hindu extremists, and there are Christian extremists. And that's the way that I slice the world. And I think the New York Times gets this wrong day after day after day. I think NPR gets it wrong day after day after day. I think CNN gets it wrong day after day after day. And I think what a generation of interfaith leaders do is they take a different lens and a different language to the news we see every day. Second thing an interfaith leader has is a knowledge base that makes that vision real. And the first part of the knowledge base is knowledge of your own religious or secular or moral tradition which speaks to pluralism. So you articulate what is it as a Muslim the most precious part of my identity, or as a Jew, or as a Buddhist, or as a secular humanist, or as a Christian, that requires me to work for pluralism. I think about Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the great German Lutheran pastor, who took the last ocean liner back from America to Nazi Germany to be a witness against the destruction of that, that was manifest in that hatred, who got on the radio the day after Kristallnacht, which was the first major foray by the Nazis into Jewish areas, intimidation, threats, violence. Bonhoeffer gets on the radio and he says, those who did not stand up for the Jews do not deserve to sing Gregorian chants. He's saying very clearly, according to him, as a Lutheran pastor and theologian, there is a requirement of justice and pluralism that precedes the privilege of worship. That's a dimension of a knowledge base that builds pluralism. So I think to myself, as a Muslim, what is it in my tradition that inspires me to build pluralism? And I want to tell you one story that I think about over and over again. It is at the heart of, of Islam that's in the, in the early days of my tradition, which I think stands as a huge part of the grand Muslim narrative of building pluralism. In the year 610 AD, 
a merchant named Muhammad took his annual pilgrimage to Mount Hira, outside of the city of Mecca. And for years, he would do this. He would go there and he would fast and he would pray and he would give alms to the poor. And on Laylatul Qadr, the night of power in the year 610, he was gripped by the angel Gabriel three times. And each time the, the angel said, Ikra, recite. And Muhammad would say, I am not a reciter. Ikra, recite. Muhammad would say, I am not a reciter. Ikra, recite. Muhammad would repeat again, I'm not a reciter. And finally, the first words of what became the Holy Quran poured from his lips. Recite in the name of your Lord who created. And there are some traditions in Islam which say that at this moment, the prophet was scared. He didn't know what had happened to him. He came back to his wife and he explained the situation. He thought for a moment that he might have been possessed by a demon. And his wife said, you are too righteous of a man for God to allow that to happen. I will take you to my cousin, Waraka. He's a man learned in the scriptures. He will tell us what has happened. And so she takes her husband to see this sage. And he looks in his eyes and he kisses his forehead and he says, Verily, the prophet of your people has arrived. The description of Warika in the Muslim tradition is that he was learned in the scriptures. What does it mean to be learned in the scriptures in the early 7th century in the Hejaz? It means he was a Christian. The person who recognized Muhammad's prophethood was a Christian. Who, the script, the traditions tell us, never converted to Islam, stayed rooted in his own tradition, but had respect, admiration, I would like to think love, for this new civilization, this new tradition emerging in his midst. And I think to myself, if that's the creation story of my faith, that it was recognized first by someone from a different tradition, that's a huge call to me. It's a huge call about how I treat people from different religions, how I respect them, how I admire them, how I love them. So what is it in your tradition, in Christianity or Buddhism or humanism or Judaism, that calls you, that requires you, that moves you to the place where Bonhoeffer was? So that you think to yourself, I am required. I am called to build pluralism. I think that's the first dimension of the knowledge base of the interfaith leader. I think the second dimension of the knowledge base is to know something of somebody else's tradition that would call or require them to build pluralism. What is it in Judaism that calls Jews to do that? Who is Hillel? Who is Heschel? What does it mean that this great rabbi who marched with King and Selma would come to Union Theological Seminary in 1965 and give a talk called No Religion is an Island. What, is, what are the dimensions of other faiths where the dimensions of mind that speak to pluralism connect? That's the second part of the knowledge base of an interfaith leader. The third part of the knowledge base is what is it in your nation, this other grand narrative that we belong to that speaks to pluralism? 
You know, there are folks out there who want to say, America is only a Christian nation. Everyone here, everyone else here, is here at our welcome. Effectively, second-class citizens. They don't participate in the same way that we do. There's a dimension of this country that believes that. And part of what they do is they tell a story of America which speaks to that ideal. They have a knowledge base which backs that up. There are folks who say America is only a secular nation, and part of what you need to do is keep your religious identity out of the public square. And they have a knowledge base and a story that backs that up. So those people who believe that America is a plural nation in which people's different religious identities enrich the public square need a knowledge base to tell that story. And here is my favorite recent chapter in that great tradition of America as a nation of religious pluralism. My friend Keith Ellison, African-American guy in Minnesota, got elected the first Muslim congressperson a couple years ago. There was, and he decided to exercise his constitutional and American right to take the oath of office on the Holy Quran. There was a bit of a hue and a cry in some parts of the country. Um, a guy who I think is out here in California said, America decides what book you take your oath of office on. And America has decided that it's the Bible. And a representative from Virginia who incidentally recently got defeated in a congressional run in 2008, a guy named Virgil Good, said, if we let Keith Ellison take his oath of office on the Quran, we will be opening our doors to the hordes of Muslim immigrants who will invade Capitol Hill and demand to take their oath of office on the Holy Quran. <laughs> Ellison couldn't quite let that go. He had to remind Representative Good that actually his ancestors had been in America longer than Representative Good's ancestors and that he felt very much a part of the earliest histories of this nation. Thank you very much. But Ellison made what I think is an absolutely statesmanlike move that reframed how people saw America, that made salient a piece of American history that wasn't a part, that wasn't at the, the front of our minds about what America is about. Just he took his oath of office on the Holy Quran, but he took it on the Quran that once belonged to Thomas Jefferson, reminding America that at the very earliest chapters of our nation's history, there were people who knew about different religions, who had admiration, reverence for different religions, such, as, such that they studied their books. And Jefferson, actually, at the end of his life, was studying Arabic. Right? And that kind of unleashes this set of stories about early America and religious diversity, the fact that George Washington had at his inauguration a Jewish clergy person, that he exchanged correspondence with the Hebrew congregation of Newport, Rhode Island, and in one of those letters wrote that in America, the children of Abraham should feel peaceful and loyal to one another, each sitting under their own vine and fig leaf. This is in the late 18th century. 50 years earlier, Benjamin Franklin built a hall in Philadelphia and said explicitly the pulpit of this hall would be open to a Muslim preacher from Constantinople. A whole different set of stories of what America is about. A knowledge base of a religiously plural nation. I think that that has to be at the tips of the tongues of any interfaith leader. The third part of what interfaith leaders do is they organize. I think, I think about Barack here. You know, I think about him in the early 80s 
on the south side of Chicago, which is African-American and white and almost entirely Christian at that time, going church to church, bringing folks together around something common. And I think that if Barack had stayed a community organizer and was organizing in those same parts of Chicago, it wouldn't just be church to church anymore. It's remarkable how parts of Chicago that were once all Irish Catholic or once all uh, uh, black evangelical now have Latino Pentecostal, Arab Muslims, Indian Hindus. Barack would have to be going from church to synagogue to temple to mosque to sangha with the ability to speak in each of those communities' languages, saying, look, this is why you as Muslims, why you as Jews, why you as, you as Buddhists should be invested in this common endeavor. Barack would have to be an interfaith organizer with the ability, number one, to speak to those different religious communities, number two, bring them together for something common, and number three, facilitate a dialogue about why it is from their religious backgrounds they have come to that place. What it is as Muslims, as Jews, as Buddhists that invests them in building that community, that commons. So let's think about this for a second. That set of characteristics, the paradigm of defining us versus them as pluralism versus totalitarianism instead of as Muslim versus Christian, the knowledge base of our own traditions and other people's traditions and our nation as entities which speak to, which strive for, which require us to build pluralism and the skill set of organizing of storytelling, of facilitation that actually makes that real. That's the, shall we call it, the trinity of what I'm calling the interfaith leader. So I'm thinking to myself, what if we had a layer of a generation who starts to see themselves in that identity category? And just like 12 or 13 year olds start to think of themselves as I want to be a human rights activist. I want to do something good in the world. And I believe this movement called the human rights movement is, is where my desire for goodness should manifest. Or environmentalism, 12-year-olds saying, listen, I believe in the idea that the earth is precious and needs to be protected. So I'm calling myself this identity of environmentalist. And I'm going to express that in a variety of ways of protecting the earth. What if we had a layer of a generation who saw themselves as interfaith leaders, who read that article in the Jersey City newspaper and said, I'm called to the front of the public square. I'm called to strengthen the bonds of pluralism between these different communities. A few months back, I was with Andy Young, um, who was a close compatriot of Martin Luther King Jr.'s in the civil rights movement, went on to be the mayor of Atlanta, the U.S. ambassador to the United Nations, did a variety of important public figure things. And we spoke on a panel together in Atlanta, and I talked about you know, what we're trying to do at the Interfaith Youth Corps in building this thing called the Interfaith Youth Movement. And he looked at me and he said, you know, when we were just starting back in the 1950s, you know, when he was a youth organizer for the National Council of Churches of Christ, he said, our movement didn't have a name. 
We weren't calling it the Civil Rights Movement. That came 20 years later. We were writing chapters in a book that didn't have a title, but we believed in this vision. That's where I feel America is in what we're calling the interfaith youth movement. We're writing the early chapters in a book that one day is gonna be called a movement, that one day is gonna have an identity category in the culture. Right? And there's both a sense of profound hope and a little sense of apprehension about that. What does it mean to try to be an early author in that? And a part of what we do at the Interfaith Youth Corps is go around the country and the world telling this story and looking for traveling companions. And that's where that little film clip comes from. And I wanna tell you the story of that because I think that that's a, a chapter of how this movement is gaining momentum. How a group of especially young people around the world are starting to view themselves as interfaith leaders and when that title is thrown out there saying, that's who I am, that's who I've always been, and I aspire into that cultural category. So about nine years back, when I was first starting the Interfaith Youth Corps, and basically the organization was a, a glint in my eye and a website, I got an email out of nowhere from this guy named Anas Abadi from Amman, from Amman Jordan. And Anas said that he had just attended, kind of on a lark, this Interfaith Conference. And he was blown away by meeting Jews who didn't fit the stereotype of what he, growing up in Jordan, had taught, was taught that Jews were. And he was like, look, I wanna be part of advancing this thing. You know, I wanna be part of advancing the spirit of this interfaith conference. The problem with the interfaith conference is that everybody was 40 years older than me. So he did you know, what you did even nine years ago, and thank you to Stanford for helping build this, he Googled it. Interfaith youth is what he Googled. And he came up with the Interfaith Youth Corps. And he said, found your website, and I wanna be a part of this. And at that time, I was a graduate student in England, and basically, I was, you know, like, well, you emailed me, and you're like the third person who did that, so you're definitely a part of it. In fact, you're in the inner circle, <laughs> shall, shall we say. Um, and Anas was like, well, what should I do? And our basic methodology was you build religious pluralism by doing interfaith service projects. You bring folks from different religious backgrounds together to build houses, to clean rivers, to tutor children, and to articulate from their different faith backgrounds what inspires them to do that. So Anas takes this methodology and he runs off and he does a project and he emails me a couple months later and he sends me pictures of this project and I put them up on our website and he says, you know, um, wh what else do you think we should do? And we kind of have this correspondence and every few months he emails me back and he says, we did that project and here are the pictures on my website, on the website. And this goes on for a couple years and then Anas and I lose touch. And six years later, I have this ridiculous opportunity of being on a, a panel at the Clinton Global Initiative with Queen Rania of Jordan and I talk about the vision of the Interfaith Youth Corps. And during the, a break in the panel, it was broken into two sessions, somebody whispers in my ear, Her Majesty would like to see you. I get kind of whisked through you know, the tunnels of the hotel to like this room where I feel like this glittering queen like descends from the ceiling and she says, you know, do you come to Jordan? Would you like to help build the Interfaith Youth Movement in Jordan? 
And I'm like, my mama didn't raise no fool. <laughs> Hell yes, you know, I'll come to Jordan and do this. So three months later, I'm on a plane to Jordan. My wife's like, if you don't bring me, I will divorce you, you know? So my wife and I go to Jordan and uh, we have our 12 minutes with the queen and you know, the, the, the person who was driving us, we weren't late at all, but he still like sped at twice the allotted miles an hour down the highway, got stopped by a cop and very proudly said, and I don't speak Arabic at all, but this much I could understand. He said to the police officer, I am taking people to see her majesty. And I'm like, gosh, that's, that sounds pretty cool, doesn't it? You know? So I have my 12 minutes with the queen, and then I have six days left in Jordan. I think to myself, I don't know anybody in this country, uh, but there's this guy, Anas, that I had correspondence with six or seven years ago, so I'll email him. I'll see if I can dig up his email and see if he's here and see you know, what's happening, and at least he'll show me around Amman a little bit. So lo and behold, Anas is in the city, and we meet in a cafe in West Amman, and you know, we haven't talked for a long time. And I think to myself, this guy could be an engineer. He could be living in Germany. He could be an accountant. Who knows what's happened to Anas? And so get together. And it's, it's great to finally meet you in person. And you know, what are you doing these days? And he hands me a book. And he says, I just wrote this book on the potential of young people in the Arab world. And the King of Jordan wrote the introduction. And I'm thinking of running for parliament. And if I do, I would be one of the youngest members there. And I just got back from leading this interfaith trip between the Middle East and uh, Mediterranean countries in Europe. And you know, basically, I'm helping to nurture this interfaith youth movement in, in Jordan, in the Middle East. And I'm like, holy cow. Like I'm meeting one of the change makers in the Middle East. I'm like, how did you start? He's like, you emailed me back. And I'm thinking to myself, yeah. You know, actually, that's kind of how things start, right? That's how movements are built. Folks who believe in the same vision, they start to find each other. They start to articulate that vision. They start to acquire the knowledge base of that vision. And they start to use their skills to make that vision a reality. And as more and more of them gather, in living rooms and in kitchens and in virtual spaces, they start to call themselves a network. And then they start to call themselves part of institutions. And then they start to call themselves a movement. And then you start thinking to yourself, this book that we're writing now has a title. The title is Interfaith Youth Movement. And then you think that this book is actually a part of a series of books. Part of, I think, a series of books in America right now under the light of Barack Obama. And what I want to end with is a story of an interfaith leader that you have all heard of, but perhaps not understood in this way. In 1950, a young seminary student, a Crozier Theological Seminary in Pennsylvania, went to Philadelphia to hear a great Christian leader talk about Christian love and Christian pacifism, Mordecai Johnson. And this young man was blown away that Mordecai Johnson talked about Christian love as being best manifest by a man that Winston Churchill once called a half-naked fakir, a Hindu from India named Mahatma Gandhi. And Mordecai Johnson talked about how the idea of ahimsa that emerges first in Jainism that Gandhi adopts into Hinduism and manifests in a movement that he calls satyagraha, love force or truth force, has something 
that resonates with American Christians. And Martin Luther King Jr., 20 years old, in a formative time of his life, sitting in the back of that lecture hall, thinks to himself, holy cow, I've always believed in this idea of Jesus as a peacemaker, of Christianity as a tradition of nonviolence and love, but I've always thought of it as something that was really only for immediate relations, really only for small personal situations. But here is an example of somebody using that idea in another tradition to free a nation. I'm going to put that in the back of my head and file it. Five years later, when Rosa Parks refused to give up her seat on a bus in Montgomery, Alabama, and a set of senior black pastors were looking for a fresh young leader to call together the first meeting of the Montgomery Improvement Association, they asked a 26-year-old recently minted PhD from Boston University named Martin Luther King Jr. to host that meeting. And King spoke of the deep love that was in Christianity. And he spoke of a strategy in which people would boycott the buses, a boycott that they thought would last for maybe a week or a month, and about 370 days later, they're still marching. They're still walking. And the people in Montgomery called that Christian love. And Martin Luther King Jr. would say, yes, it was Jesus who furnished the inspiration, but it was an Indian Hindu who provided us the method. And King was so struck by Gandhi that four years later he traveled to India in 1959 and he met with Nehru and he saw the remnants of Gandhi's Satyagraha movement. And what he was most blown away by was that it wasn't just a Hindu movement. That Abdul Ghaffar Khan, people would call the Muslim Gandhi, the frontier Gandhi, walked side by side with Gandhi into Indian villages, alternately speaking from the Holy Quran and the Bhagavad Gita that there were Sikhs and Jains and Buddhists and Christians who were a part of that Satyagraha movement. King watches religious diversity coming together to free a nation. King starts to see Gandhi as an interfaith leader and he starts to absorb that worldview. And he returns to Montgomery, Alabama and he gets up in the pulpit of Ebenezer Baptist Church. In 1959, in a provincial city and he speaks these words, O oh God, O oh Heavenly Father, we call you this name, but we know some call you Brahma, and we know some call you Elohim, and we know some call you Allah, and we know some call you the unmoved mover. Four years later, 1963, King comes to my city, Obama City, Chicago. And he gives his sermon on the Hebrew prophets. Let justice rain down like waters and righteousness like a mighty stream. And in the back of that room is a man who had barely escaped six weeks away from Auschwitz. Just got out before Hitler's death camps got him. Sitting, listening to King's lecture and thinking to himself, I hear the Hebrew prophets in this man's voice. And the rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel decides that the soul of Judaism is at stake 
in the civil rights movement. And he marches arm in arm with King in that famous picture at Selma, the man with the long beard is Rabbi Heschel. And he says at the end of that march, you know, we have different liturgies, we have different forms of worship, but I have to tell you that at Selma with King, I felt like my legs were praying. And three years after that, it is correspondence with the Buddhist monk Thich Nhat Hanh that, bring King, that brings King to Riverside Church, where he says, I am here to speak out against the Vietnam War because I have one loyalty above every other loyalty, above race or nation or creed. I am a Christian. I am the son of the living God. And it is my Christian commitment, incidentally provoked by a Buddhist monk who King nominates for the Nobel Peace Prize that brings me to this pulpit and requires me to speak for the least of these, which today is the Vietnamese. And in that sermon where King says, my highest loyalty is to Jesus Christ, he also says, the Hindu, Muslim, Jewish, Buddhist belief is that love is the supreme unifying principle of life. And then he follows that by quoting from St. John. That's the journey of an interfaith leader. Somebody who is deeply rooted in the tradition that he comes from. The king says, many people want to make of me many things. But at bottom, I'm the son of a Baptist minister, and I'm the grandson of a Baptist minister. And living that commitment is the highest thing I will ever do. His loyalty to that tradition is joined almost musically by his understanding of all traditions as having the shared value of love and his willingness to articulate that shared value in his own particular language, the language of Christianity. And it's in a book that King publishes that year that I think he articulates this vision. And I wouldn't be surprised if this is the book that Obama got this notion of America's patchwork heritage being not only our domestic strength, but our international force for peace. It's a book called, Where Do We Go From Here, Chaos or Community? And I'll end with this section. King talks about this ancient novelist who in his papers at his death were found notes of a final novel. The novel would be called The World House. And the premise would be that humanity was a giant family that had inherited a house, a world house, where, as King says, all of us, Hindu and Muslim, Gentile and Jew, Protestant and Catholic, have to, because we can never again live apart, learn to live with each other in peace. Jazakallah May God give you goodness. Thank you. So let's talk. Questions, stories, poems? Um, and it seems like a semantic thing, but as you discussed, it really does belie a worldview. 
Oh, thank you so much. So I was just talking about um, language and religion and language and worldview. And I was curious to hear what you had to say about creating an interfaith vocabulary. How, you know, sometimes you have these, these distinctions that seem just semantic when you're talking to someone where what I would call the Torah, somebody else would call the Old Testament. Right. And so how do you talk between two religions, using your vocabulary, respecting the other person's, but finding a joint vocabulary that you can really, um, without either one feeling like they're giving up anything? Right. I think, I think that's a great question. Thank you for that. Um, so here's how we do this at the Interfaith Youth Corps. The framework of this is we call the relationship between particularity and pluralism, or the unique and the universal. And basically how you think about it is at the center of the table are a set of shared values, right? And King, I think, is a great example of this. Uh, he cites the shared value of love between these different traditions. But he doesn't give up his particularity. When he describes love, it's not in generic language, it's in St. John. So what he's doing is articulating this universal amongst different faiths and traditions, and then saying, I have a particular language to this universal, right? I see this world in my grain of sand, so to speak. And part of what that allows then is it's an invitation to other people to share from their own particular language. So I think that one of the fallacies of, of interfaith work is this notion of if, if I share my particularity, it will dominate your particularity. I don't think that that's true. I think that if you share your particularity, all of a sudden you open the space up for other people to share theirs. So let me, let me tell you a story from my personal experience about this. A couple years ago, I had the honor of speaking at a place called Berea College, one of the coolest places in America. It's in, it's in Kentucky, started in the 19th century uh, by people who, by Christians, who thought that segregation was absolutely antithetical to, to the Bible, to the Christian tradition. And so they founded this educational institution which brought blacks and whites together to study. And now it's this powerful international educational institution in which nobody pays tuition and instead people you know, who would otherwise not be able to afford college go and study and each, and, and each the campus gets them jobs so that they can do that. And there's people from all over the world here. And it's based on this Christian tradition. It has this Christian history. So I'm asked to speak there at a convocation, which is held in their chapel, which is the largest building on campus. And in the back of this chapel is a big cross. And um, the nice liberal chaplain or person who is running this says to me, you know, as a Muslim, do you feel offended by this cross and should we take it down? And I'm like, absolutely not. You know, it is your understanding of that cross that brought me here Right? And it is that cross which allows me to open my talk with the line, Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. It is your ability to articulate your particularity, your narrative for building pluralism that allows me to articulate my narrative for building pluralism. So what I would suggest is to, to not think about this in terms of if, whether it's, in my view, the most salient question is not the Old Testament or the Hebrew Bible, although I, I understand how you know, that's irksome to many people, but to, to build a different framework in which people have different conversations. And the framework is, how does your particularity speak to pluralism? In what ways do you express 
uniquely a universal value like love, like hospitality, like uh, compassion. Right? And this is precisely how we work at the Interfaith Youth Court. In fact, you know, part of what Hannah and Julie will do tomorrow in their training sessions, which I hope a lot of you go to, is kind of hold a training for how you not only articulate that language, but invite other people to articulate in that language. You know, a big part of it is how you frame the conversation, how you encourage other people to talk. Thank you. Um, hi, uh, I'm, I'm from India and um, basically uh, I had a question regarding how to sort of, I, I completely agree with you, with your views on religious pluralism, but um, the face that religious fundamentalism is taking today, in India at least, is um, this sort of idea that homogeneity breeds efficiency and breeds economic efficiency and sort of smoothen things out in a way. And so may, either it's better to keep religion out of public life entirely, or it's a better thing to have people of just one religion in more extremist mm -hmm. cases. So um, how do you sort of answer that when people say that as a whole, the nation will do better if we're all a homogeneous mix? Right. I, I think that that's a perfect example of how one group of people is a, has exactly what I talked about, a vision, a knowledge base, and a skill set. Their vision is of a Hindu rashtra in India, right? And they have a knowledge base, which they are speaking over megaphones, which says that India has always been a Hindu nation. This is Hindu civilization, and it's good for this variety of reasons. And then they have a skill set, which they you know, mas manifest very effectively through politics and civil society, which makes that reality. So what those of us who are pluralists have to do is precisely the mirror image of that, which is to articulate a different vision of, of India. Right, a vision of India that is, you know, I grew up with Akbar and Birbal comics. You know, my parents, as somebody of Indian heritage, wanted to teach me very young that the ideal of India was a nation of communities building a country together. So the first thing that you do is you articulate that different vision. The second thing that you do is you articulate a knowledge base that speaks to that vision. In this case, you articulate examples of how actually it's religiously diverse areas in which that religious diversity is brought together in pluralism leads to economic vibrancy, leads to efficiency, leads to building a better nation. Right? If they have their knowledge base at the tips of their tongue, we have to have our knowledge base at the tips of our tongue. Otherwise, what happens is you forfeit the terrain to them. And then people start to believe, well, actually, you know, the economy runs better if we're all Hindu in this area. And this is the way India started anyway. So let's go back to that, both of which are false. But if we don't have an alternative vision and a knowledge base that fleshes that vision out and a skill set then that, makes, that manifests that vision in reality, we lose. We forfeit that territory. What concerns me is, is not that the group you are talking about is necessarily a majority. What concerns me is precisely what this young woman was saying earlier. They know their language. They speak cogently and compellingly. Extremists know exactly what they're about. What concerns me about pluralists is that we don't have the same clear language. We don't have the same immediate set of skills which can articulate an alternative vision, marshal a knowledge base, and apply a skill set.
right? Which is exactly why I use that framework as what I think an interfaith leader does. And then you think about the variety of situations in which if an interfaith leader had come to the fore instead of an extremist leader, that situation might be very different, right? Gujarath in 2002 could be very different if the leader in Gujarat was not Modi, if it was somebody else, somebody articulating a different vision of India with a different knowledge base and a different skill set. Actually, the same skill set, just those skills applying that different knowledge base. Thank you. Yes. Hi. Um, as you mentioned uh, at the beginning, um, Obama also mentioned non-believers after he listed Christian, Muslim, Jew, Hindu. And so I was wondering um, what you what role atheists and agnostics and spiritualists have in your vision of pluralism? Um, how do you engage with people who's, who either um, don't have a faith or have a faith that comes from, a le from not, not from organized religion, from a very personal um, source? Right, I mean, they are part of this movement in an equal way, just like everybody else is. And what they do is speak from their text and their tradition. And there is such a thing called the secular humanist tradition. And it's something that I've become a, a lot more aware of as you know, the Interfaith Youth Corps staff has grown and probably has five or six secular humanists on staff who are quick to quote from Whitman, who are quick to quote from Thoreau, who are quick to, quick to quote from their ethnic or racial or national or family traditions and say, look, this is why I do this. Right? So they also have kind of that unique expression of a universal value, you know, a particular path that leads towards pluralism. And there, I would say 20% of any room that we're doing a presentation or a training in, and there are probably 20% of our staff, they're just like Muslims and Hindus and Jews and Christians. They're just like anybody else who's a part of this. Yes. I have a question that I'm kind of trying to figure out. Okay, I'm trying to figure out how to articulate this. So um, I was thinking like, we have a bunch of different cultures along with our religions too. And a lot of times, um, especially in like junior high and high schools, I mean, I think we're a little better at it in college, but when we get people together, for like um, a diversity thing, it's like each culture has their different day or whatever. So then you're like teaching people about your culture and your religion, your traditions. But then at the same time, that's kind of splitting it up. And then a lot of times, even if you're doing that, you don't know enough about your own religion or your own culture uh -huh. to be able to teach someone else or to talk about it and defend. And I, we're, we go to St. Mary's College and we have this program called the seminar program. So we learn through like arguing with people and stuff like that. It's a blast. But I mean, <laughs> like, sounds like, sounds like our staff. <laughs> but I mean, a lot of times, like, especially for younger people, that's not really possible because you can't articulate your ideas well enough. Or especially here, a lot of times people are afraid to talk about their religions in pretty much any context. It's like, it's not a general dinner table conversation. So what do you do about like the lack of education and the inability to actually go out and say something? Do you know right. what I mean? Well, uh, you're <laughs> asking, that's a, there's about six questions there <laughs> yeah. that uh, <laughs> Professor McGraw is gonna have to build about four courses around to even <laughs> respond to um, tangentially. But let me, let me unpack a couple of different dimensions of that, okay? One dimension is, is I spoke a lot about the clash of civilizations, which of course is Samuel Huntington's famous framing on 
the post-Cold War world order. And let me say off the bat that, that I think it's probably the most dangerous theory in the world, and I also think that two-thirds of it is right. And here are the two-thirds that I think is right. Part one is that Huntington says identity, cultural identity, which is largely based in religion and secondarily in language, is probably the most precious thing to most people on the planet. Okay. Number two, people convene around their cultural identities. There is such a thing called the church. Right? It's the group of people in the world, two billion strong, who call themselves Christians. There is such a thing called the Ummah. These are imagined communities, but they're people who feel powerful affinities for each other nonetheless. Right? It's a group of 1.3 billion people who call themselves Muslims. That's the two-thirds that I agree with when it comes to Sam Huntington. Now, I think it's a lot messier than that. I'm not sure that civilizations are separate, and there's you know, a thousand, a gazillion responses to Huntington, which talks about you know, to be provocative, religious and cultural miscagnation, which is to say the mixing between these faiths and, you know, Christians, Muslims, and Druze, Jews in Spain in the 12th century and in Cairo, it's all this kind of stuff. But there is no doubt that for most people, being a Muslim or a Hindu or a Christian or a Buddhist is probably their most precious identity, right? The part of Huntington that I profoundly disagree with is that that inherently leads to a clash between them. So the question then becomes, in a world in which people think their cultural identity is of utmost importance, and of groups who convene around such cultural identities, and in a contemporary era, which is the most interactional in human history, which you know, in layman's terms means very simply that more people are in more frequent and intense contact than ever before. The question is, how are Muslims, Jews, Christians, Buddhists, secularists gonna engage one another? Are we going to watch what's happening in Baghdad or what happens occasionally in Bombay or what happened for three decades in Belfast and what happened in a lower level way in Jersey City, is that gonna be normative for human relations? And that then begs the question, how do you build a different type of reality, given that there is in fact a set of tensions that occasionally flare into outright violence between these different communities? So I think the, the second dimension of your question that I want to answer is the dimension of articulating ourself, right? I want to go back to the King example. I think what's striking about King being in the back of that room at, in Philadelphia in 1950 is that he hears this story of a Hindu approach to a peace movement, and what that raises in him is the resonant Christian value. And I actually think that this is the model of how human relations actually work, which is to say, when somebody explains to you their spiritual journey in being a Jew, so to speak, what it actually helps you do is tell your story as a Muslim. I mean, this in, in large part is the story of, of my book. It's the encounter with Christians and they're telling me 
their story of Christian-based social justice, which led me back to a deeper exploration of Islam and Muslim-based social justice. So I think what I'm suggesting is, in a similar way as I was talking about earlier, how do we get that dynamic right? So that in the encounter of different identities, people are able to tell stories from their background which express their particular path and which invites other people to tell their story. That was probably a really complicated way to say something that's probably pretty simple, which you know, at the Interfaith Youth Corps, we apply in interfaith service projects, and the conversation goes like this. Hey, because Jesus served other people, I serve other people. You're a Jew, why do you serve other people? And the Jew says, well, in the Hebrew Bible, Exodus, in Exodus it says, because you were strangers once in Egypt, do not treat anybody as a stranger. So I try to show hospitality to other people through service. And what you have there is this encounter, people from two backgrounds, each telling stories from their background. That makes sense? Yeah. Okay. You still ask Professor McGraw to teach that class, though. That's cool. Maybe one final question? Yes. Okay. Um, it kind of has to do with the definition of extremism that you sort of give with pluralism and extremism, right? So when I first thought of extremism, I thought like more orthodox or extremism mm -hmm. in your religion. So my question is, how do you clearly distinguish, um, you know, like the people who don't accept others versus people who are actually like really religious? Right. I think, it's a, I think that's a great question. I mean, the way that we do this at the Interfaith Youth Corps is we separate theology from sociology or heaven from earth, so to speak, and which is to say that an extremist is not somebody we think, who thinks that only their people are getting into heaven, right? An extremist is somebody who wants to dominate other people on earth, who wants to say America is only for Christians and everyone else is a second-class citizen. India is only for Hindus and everyone else is a second-class citizen. Egypt is only for Muslims and everyone else is a second-class citizen, right? And so I actually disagree with people who think that extremists are people who have theologically quote-unquote conservative views. I think that having a theologically conservative view is a, a, a legitimate and honored interpretation of any religious tradition. And simply because one thinks that only one's own community is getting to heaven, that doesn't in any way make one an extremist unless there is some manifestation of that on earth. And actually, if we're talking about demographics here, 50, 60% of people who are part of religious communities have those types of theological interpretations. And if we are leaving them out, we're not doing interfaith work. We're having liberal cocktail parties, right? <laughs> and, you know, that's, I mean, that's, as nice as liberal cocktail parties with sparkling water and smelly cheeses are, that's, I don't think that that's going to build pluralism. I think what's going to build pluralism is the encounter of deep theological difference with, if I can be fancy about this, profound sociological overlap. So if you think back to Heschel and King, 
right? Heschel, who is an Orthodox Jew, King, who is a deeply committed Baptist minister, who says, my highest commitment is to the Son of the living God, and I'm not watering that down, marching together in Selma. It's not that King believed in Heschel's theology. It's that they both believed in an earth where people lived in equal dignity and mutual loyalty. Who knows what they thought of each other's ideas of heaven? What was important or what was salient for them was that they shared a vision of earth. So I, you know, at the Interfaith Youth Corps, um, we have people who don't think that I, as a Muslim, am going to the same place as they are after we die. And they say to me, I'll pray for your soul in church on Sunday, and I'll come ready to work on Monday to build the dream of sociological pluralism. And occasionally, I have to remind them that they don't control heaven anyway, so they can think whatever they want about me. You know, I occasionally have to tell Rick Warren that also, you know, but people like Rick Warren, who have an exclusivist theology, do really powerful work in places like Africa. And there is a profound overlap between my Muslim sense of social justice and his Christian sense of social justice. And I would much rather have the conversation about what can be done around reconciliation in Rwanda or AIDS and malaria in Africa than argue ad infinitum about something that neither of us control, which is heaven. I'm gonna do the best I can with what I have, be the best Muslim I can be, and pray for Rick Warren's soul during Juma. <laughs> Thank you. Dr. Dr. Patel, I, I suspect there are a number of people in this audience tonight who are the Martin Luther Kings, the 20-year-olds, who have heard a vision articulated and given hope that there are practical, concrete ways to fulfill that vision. And I thank you for bringing that to us wish you the best and your organization the best. And I want to remind everyone that tomorrow there is an opportunity with two workshops for you to get very practical help in how to proceed with this vision. That your book is available immediately following, well not immediately following, I know you have about a 10 minute interview with the press immediately following this. But if you go out into the lobby, you'll find that there is a, a table there where books are being sold, if you can hold on for about 10 minutes, you'll be out there and available to sign those books, I believe. But thank you very much for an extraordinary Heinz lecture.